Jude verse 14, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. The second coming of Christ. It is probably the greatest, well, no probably to it, it is the greatest prophetic event of all the ages. Amen. We don't just believe, we know Jesus Christ is coming back. And you know how I know he is? He said he would. Amen. And Jesus always keeps his promises. So Jesus Christ is coming back. You say, well, when's he coming, preacher? Well, I don't know, okay? <laughs> Nobody knows. If anybody tries to give you a date and a time or even a date, a day when Jesus is coming back, don't listen to them because Jesus said, no man knows, only the Father which is in heaven knows. Amen. When God says it's time, Jesus will return and not until over 380 verses in the Bible speak of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are probably other verses that allude to it, but 380 that speak directly to the coming of Christ. In these early churches, especially the first century churches, they thought more about the second coming of Christ than they did of death. That's how they were faithful unto death or until it cost them their lives either their way of living that they were practicing or actually cost them their physical lives. I pastored a man one time, and I always liked this. Brother and I used to say, I want to go by the upper taker, not by the undertaker. Amen. He said, I want to go by the cloud. I don't want to go by the cloud. Brother and I passed away, but he's in the presence of the Lord today. He was a great godly and faithful man. Now, we're living in a day of what the scripture refers to as apostasy. Apostasy is just simply this. It is a turning from the truth. The word apostasy comes from a word in the Greek language which is akin to a word for divorce. And see, I contend apostasy is not talking about people who've never been saved who are false teachers, but I'm, it's talking about people who were saved, even churches who once were close to the truth, knew the truth, loved the truth, but they have turned from the truth. And what are we seeing today? For the sake of numbers, for the sake of entertainment, for the sake of drawing people in, many churches are going into the entertainment business. Amen. They may be going into the bread business. You know, we, if we feed people enough, they'll come and, and we can get people coming to church. You say, shouldn't we do everything possible to get people to church? Yes, we ought to witness, we ought to invite, we ought to live. <laughs> we ought to do everything. People say, well, today the ends justify the means. No, the means determines the end. If you keep people, you get people coming to church for entertainment, guess what? You're going to have to entertain them from now on. You get people coming to church to eat bread, you're going to have to feed them bread from now on. We have one thing to offer, and it's on our sign out front. It says this, our focus is on God's Word. Now, I know that doesn't attract the masses. I know it doesn't cause people to say, well, I want to stop in and hear what they have to say. I wish it would. I wish we had people in this town, in this community today, who were just so hungry for the Word of God as somebody says, we're focusing on God's Word, they'd say, I want to go hear that. So many want to be entertained, and I've told you before, I'm not an entertaining preacher. 
Sometimes I can't even entertain myself, so it's pretty bad, isn't it? But the apostasy that is going on, false teachers coming into the Lord's churches, churches leaving the truth, religious pretenders and charlatans do not refute the second coming of Jesus Christ, folks. You know what they do? They prove the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. And by the way, what was happening in the church at Thessalonica? Some people were saying, well, the rapture and resurrection have occurred and we missed it and so we're just done for. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. The apostle Paul told them, let no man deceive you by any means. For that day, talking about the day of the Lord, the coming of Christ, that day shall not come except to come a falling away first and the man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. God's word has predicted, has prophesied what we're seeing happening today among many churches, among many people who once called themselves Christians or tried to be a member of one of the Lord's churches and then turned themselves from the truth. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're familiar with these verses, I know, but chapter 3 verse, the first four verses of that third chapter of 2 Timothy tell us this, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Now Paul's writing to a preacher. These are perilous days. As I said a moment ago, we have so many of our members who just don't see the need for being here on a regular basis, for being faithful, to being in Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night services. And if I'm not careful, I'm going to get off into what I was talking about in Sunday school this morning. See, we were raised this way. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, revival services, anytime there's something going on at church, you're going to be there. And if one of the boys is sick, one parent stays home with him. The other parent takes the one that's not sick and goes to church. Illness was not an excuse for the whole family to sit at home and not go worship God. And so we were raised that way. And I don't think I'm too twisted, too abnormal, am I? Well, I can tell by the silence that there's an opinion there. Okay. But see, that's, and that's the way we raised our children. And so... One of the dangers when that goes on is this, that if you've been going to church all your life, if you're not careful, it becomes just a habit. Amen. I think I did this in the Sunday school class this morning. Well, why do you go to church on Sunday? Well, because it's Sunday. Well, what do you go to church for? Because we've always gone to church on Sunday. Well, why have you always gone to church on Sunday? Because it's Sunday, you know. We don't understand that we come together, first of all, because God's Word commands it. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves. By the way, this is not a message on church. I'll get to the other message in a moment. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. God says, be there. Be there. Be encouraging one another in the word of God. And so we come to worship God. We come to encourage one another and to lift one another up. I think, as I said a moment ago, this is holy ground when we come in here. But I have noticed, and, and I'm as guilty as anybody, I sent, mentioned this to the Sunday school class, it's real easy to come in here and talk about something that happened yesterday or something that happened this week that has absolutely nothing to do with worshiping and serving God. We're just going to talk about our lives. See, have we gotten so away from the Word of God that it just becomes easy to talk about anything else but the Word of God when we meet with our brothers and sisters in Christ? He says perilous times are coming. I don't know about you, but as a pastor of one of the Lord's churches, I see the perilous times, folks. Amen. 
For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures, more than lovers of God. I'd rather be on the lake or the deer stand than be in church. I'd rather be playing golf than be in church. I'd rather be going to a sale at pennies than being, you know, whatever. Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. And then he says this in verse 5, having a form of godliness. And that's the one that disturbs me, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. If we're talking about churches, there are a lot of powerless churches in our world today. They have a form, but they don't have the power. We're talking about the apostasy and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You look around. See, you can look at the world and you can look at America and say, oh, things sure look bad. I look two places, the Middle East and the Lord's churches. Amen. You know, the things that are going on in this country have gone on in this country. This is not the America we grew up in. We know that. But things like this have always been happening. But here's the thing. What's happening in the Middle East, there's, there's the real key to where our world is today. What's happening with the nation of Israel and then what's happening in the Lord's churches. And as the Lord's churches grow colder and farther away from God, folks, we're just moving right on into this time. The second coming of Jesus Christ may well be right upon us. Oh, we could look at wars and we could look at famines and we can look at disease. We can look at COVID. I had a lot of questions when all of this started 18 months ago. Is this the, the beginning of the end? Is this the book? I don't know. The Bible does say that in the last days there are going to be pestilences and certainly COVID is a pestilence. These things are growing closer together and they're getting harder and harder just like as the Bible describes a woman having those birth pains. And we know that the time of Christ's return is drawing near and that apostasy of the Lord's churches and God's people is a sign of the last days. And these verses teach us some things about the apostasy and the second coming of Christ. First of all, they teach us about the surety of his coming. Look at what he says back over here in verse 14. He talks about a man named Enoch. And Enoch was the seventh from Adam. Now what does it mean Enoch was the seventh from Adam? Six generations had passed after Adam and Enoch was born. <laughs> Enoch is an Old Testament example of what awaits those of us who are saved. Do you realize that? Who was Enoch? Enoch was the man who walked with God, and the scripture says God took him. In fact, Genesis 5.24 says this, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Let me give you a wonderful thought about that word took. You know what the, the picture of that word took is? It's the idea of taking somebody by the hand. We got to take our grandchildren out to eat Friday night. But when we got out of the vehicle and started into the, yes, pizza place, Okay, got out of the vehicle and started in the pizza plate. You know what we said? Hold my hand. Hold my hand. So we took them by the hand and we led them into where they were supposed to go. Here's the picture. This is a beautiful picture that God just reached down and he took Enoch by the hand and he said, come on home with me. I think I've shared with you a little child was talking about that one time. And he said, God... Enoch used to take these long walks together and one day God just said, Enoch, we're closer to my home than we are to yours. Why don't you just go home with me today? And it's a beautiful, beautiful, Hebrews 11:5. 5, 
says this, by faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him for before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. That word translated means to transport to another place. You get this picture? God just reached down and took Enoch and said come on and took him home with him. You know what's waiting us? Jesus is coming back. And I can just see him taking us by the hand and saying come on home with me child. It's time, it's time to come home with me. And here's the testimony of Enoch. He pleased God. Amen. You know what? We ought to be pleasing to God on a daily basis as the people of God. Today, and I don't want you to go to seed on this. I'm throwing this out for you to consider. Today we have about 6,000 years of human history upon this earth, don't we? We have 2,000 years from Adam to Abraham. We have 2,000 years from Abraham to Christ. We are in the year 2021, 2,021 years in the year of our Lord. That's about 6,000 years of history upon this earth. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 8 says that one day is with the Lord is 1,000 years and 1,000 years is one day. So we only have six days of history, right? By God's time clock upon this earth. Now how long did it take for God to create or recreate this earth? Six days. What did he do on the seventh day? He rested. Okay, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 9 says, There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. And that word rest is the word, the writer of Hebrews created this word. It's not found anywhere else. Sabbatismos. And you know what that is? That is a Sabbath type of rest. Are you saying, preacher, that Jesus could come at any moment? I'm saying he could come at any moment. Not necessarily based on this thing that I thought of. But Jesus could come at any moment. There's the promise of Christ coming. What happened to Enoch is going to happen to you and is going to happen to me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians the 4th chapter. We're familiar with these verses. Most of the time you hear these verses read, say, at a, at a funeral or somewhere like that. They give comfort. But listen, this is comfort to us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 beginning in verse 16. For the Lord himself shall descend. He's not sending somebody back after us. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And then he says comfort one another with these words. Jesus Christ himself is coming back for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 52, Behold I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That word sleep has the idea of dying. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed. In a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. The word of God tells us over and over again. And by the way back in 1 Thessalonians 4 that word caught up is the word that we refer to or the phrase we refer to when we talk about being raptured. The word rapture is not in the Bible. Some people will make a big deal about that. But the Greek word that is translated caught up, if you write it over into English, you know what it becomes? It becomes raptured. So we're going to be raptured, those of us who are alive at the coming of Christ. Our loved ones who have died are going to be resurrected. And we have a promise from the one who is coming for us that he himself will take us home. 
John chapter 14, verse 2, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. I think about that verse in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, when the disciples are standing, Jesus is ascending into heaven, the disciples are standing, I can just see that. Have you ever been in a big city with tall buildings and watch people go out? They get the roof of their mouth sunburned by looking up so much at the tall buildings. But, you know, they're just going around looking up. I can see the disciples doing that. And two men in white apparel, I'm sure they were angels, stood there and said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. He's coming back. And he's coming back for us. Now, Luke tells us in Luke chapter 17 about some of those events. See, it's going to be a universal event. It's going to be worldwide. Because Luke tells us that in the day that Jesus comes back, some folks are going to be at work. Some folks are going to be sleeping. I just thought those may be the same folks, by the way. Some folks sleep at work, don't they? But some on one side of the world will be working. Some on the other side of the world are going to be asleep. It's an instantaneous, simultaneous worldwide event. What does 1 Corinthians 15, 52 say? In a moment. In the twinkling of an eye. That twinkling of an eye is just a blink of an eye. A blink of an eye is an involuntary motion, isn't it? You blink and you don't even know you blink. You're going to watch, start watching people to see when they blink, aren't you? But we just blink and we don't even realize it. It's so quick we don't even realize that we blink. It, the twinkling talks about the movement of an eyelid. And that takes place, those involuntary, in a nanosecond. And a nanosecond is one one-thousandth of a microsecond. We just do it. We'll realize that's how quick the catching up of the saved is going to be. There won't be time to say, I need to get things right with you, Lord. There won't be time to say, hey, let me go to church one more time. Lenny Wolf wrote a wonderful song called One Day Too Late. I never thought I'd see the day you'd come to kneel and pray. I never thought that I would see the church house filled to capacity. And he goes on to say, but you came one day too late. Jesus had already come. I can see, possibly, after the resurrection and the rapture occur, people knocking on the church door wanting to get in. Well, guess what? It's too late. Somebody put something wonderful on... Uh, Facebook the other day. I can't remember it exactly. But you know, yes, COVID is real. But hell is real. And I don't see people getting in a panic about that. People just sort of blow that off, throw that off. But it's going to happen. Now Enoch, the scripture said, lived in the days of Noah. Well, what were the days of Noah like? He lived right before the birth of Noah and right before the flood came. He lived 669 years prior to the flood. In fact, Enoch was Noah's great-grandfather. Enoch had a son. Now, before we get to that, let's think about what the days of Noah were like. Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 37, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. You know what it says? What were people doing in Noah's day? They were going about life as usual. They weren't thinking about the flood coming. They were eating. There's nothing wrong with eating. They were drinking. 
There's nothing wrong with getting something to drink. They were getting married. They were giving their daughters in marriage. There's nothing wrong with those things. The problem is that they were doing these things without giving any thought that this could be the day that God brings his judgment upon earth. Because if you think about the days of Noah, go back and read the sixth chapter of Genesis. Man had gotten really, really evil in that day. Sort of like our day. And God said, I'm going to wipe it out. Luke 17, 28 says this, Likewise also as it was in the days of Lot. They did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built it. In the days of Lot, before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, they were just going about life as usual. You know what we're doing today? We're going about life as usual. Except for a small group like this. And hopefully you do on a daily basis. Do you ever get up in the morning and say, This could be the day the Lord comes back. This could be the day that God calls me home. See, none of us is guaranteed life. None of us is guaranteed the next hour, the next minute, the next second. I realize standing here preaching, I could drop dead like that right in the pulpit. And by the way, if, if the Lord doesn't come back before I die, that's where I want to die is in the pulpit, you know. I'd like to be in the middle of preaching a sermon when the Lord calls me home. Boy, that would have an effect on some folks, you think. <laughs> I know they'd say he was just overweight and he brought it on himself. People will excuse things. We just live like it's a regular day. But today could be the day that Jesus Christ were to return. I need to hurry on. There were days of anarchy much like ours, but Enoch speaks of the surety of Christ's coming. He lived in the days of Noah. He didn't suffer in the flood. He walked with God right after his son Methuselah was born. You know what Methuselah means? See, names used to mean something. They give a child a name. A lot of these names like Daniel with an E-L on the end and Ezekiel with an E-L on the end and names like that. That was the name for God, El. Elohim. And so these Hebrew mothers, hoping that their son would be the promised redeemer, would name their child and on the end of it put an E-L. Well, Methuselah had a name. And his name, Methuselah, meant this. When he is dead, when he is gone, it will come. What will come? The flood. God gave warning. See, the scripture says God doesn't do anything without he tells his prophets. And God had given warning through the name of Methuselah that the flood was coming, but it pictures God's mercy because how long did Methuselah live? 969 years, the oldest man ever. Well, why did Methuselah live so long? Because God's delaying judgment. God's just waiting. See, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9 reminds us of the reason that God is delaying his judgment today. The scripture says, Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness. That means that it's not that God can't bring judgment. He's just putting it off. And here's why. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Listen, if you're here this morning or you're watching by way of live stream this morning, let me assure you of this. God does not want you to die and go to hell. Amen. That's why he's giving you this opportunity. And that's why he's giving you previous opportunities. Will he give you one more opportunity? I don't know. Mercy runs out. But God doesn't want anybody to die and go to hell, and so he's delaying judgment. 
Well, who will be judged? That brings us to our next point, the severity of his coming. There's the condemnation of the world. The Lord cometh, he says, to execute judgment upon all and to convince all. You know what judgment is? It is not figuring out whether you're guilty or innocent. Judgment is talking about the pronouncing of the sentence. One of these days, God is going to pronounce sentence upon this evil world. The time of tribulation is coming, and it is the time of God's judgment upon mankind who has rejected Jesus Christ. You read the book of Revelation, you see how terrible that time is going to be. Let me give you just right quickly a few verses. It's a time of God's wrath on the world. Revelation 6, 17 talks about the great day of his wrath. Revelation 11, 17 and 18 says, thy wrath is come. Revelation chapter 14, verses 10 and 19 talk about the winepress of his wrath. You know what you do in a winepress? You stomp out the grapes. You crush the grapes. It talks about the winepress of God's wrath. Revelation chapter 15, verse 1, talks about seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Verse 7, talks about seven golden vials full of the wrath of God. The wrath of God is coming upon this world. Revelation 16, 1, they're instructed to pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. And in Revelation 19, verse 15, he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. Folks, I don't want to be around. And thankfully, because I know Christ is Savior, and because you do too, we're not going to be around when God pours out His wrath. The Scripture says that we're not appointed to wrath. God's going to get us out of here before He brings His wrath upon all mankind that's left upon this earth. The coming of Christ is in two stages. He comes first for His saints, and then he comes at the end of that tribulation period with his saints. It involves conviction. Why is God bringing his wrath? Why is God bringing his judgment? He says to convince all that are ungodly among them. That word convince means to rebuke sternly. To show them to be completely wrong. To convict them of being wrong. They're, it, they're ungodly. That means without fear, without reverence from God. This is talking about someone who practices everything opposite of what God desires. And so God's wrath is coming upon this earth. And the ultimate result of God's judgment upon the ungodly is to show them the failure and the sinfulness of their ways. You know, there are people in our world that think, well, if you just live a good life, if you just be good, you can do anything you want to do and you go to heaven one of these days. Don't worry about it. God's not going to send anybody to hell. God's just going to say, all right, I ne never mind. All that other stuff didn't mean anything. You're all going to get to go to heaven. God's going to show them that's wrong one of these days. Those people who preach and teach and practice works for salvation, God's going to show them that's wrong one of these days. He is going to convince the ungodly of the sinfulness of their ways. What will they, they be convicted of? Of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed. All those godless acts which mankind has committed. Things they've done without reverence and without fear of God. We live in a world today that laughs at the idea of God. Do you realize that? We live in a world that laughs at the thought of the idea of God. One of these days. One of these days they're going to find out there is a God in heaven. He is real and he is bringing his judgment upon this earth. Something the lost folks don't realize when you speak against a child of God or one of the Lord's churches, you know what you're doing? You're speaking against God himself. 
And when this world criticizes us for preaching and teaching things like this, they're not talking about me. They're not talking about you. They're not talking about this church. They're criticizing and speaking against God. Remember, Jesus said, whatsoever you do to the least of one of these my little ones, he said, you do it unto me. However you treat a child of God, it's how you treat it, your attitude toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And the scripture teaches us that every word that a man speaks is going to be judged one of these days. That sort of scares me a little bit. I tend to talk a lot. You can say amen to that. But that scares me. One of these days, every word that we speak is going to be judged by God. It may well be at the great white throne judgment of God. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 20. We're not going to take the time to go there. But it doesn't matter whether you are a president, a king, or a skid row bum. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you're going to stand before the great white throne judgment of God. Not to hear whether or not you're saved. But to hear those horrible words from Matthew chapter 7. When Jesus said, I'll say to them in that day, depart from me. I never knew you, ye that work iniquity. The time of the second coming will be a time of judgment upon the lost. It'll be a glorious time for the saved, but a time of God's judgment upon the lost. And here's the sanctity of his coming. And I like this part. He says, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. That phrase ten thousands literally means myriads. It is an innumerable host. It is a number that you can't Imagine, you can't even think about. It is thousands of thousands and ten thousands of ten thousands. How many people have been saved throughout the 6,000 years of mankind's history? I don't know. But God knows. And you know what? God knows each and every one of them. And he knows them by name. And he knows you by name. And he knows me by name. The second stage of Christ's return, Christ coming with his saints, is going to be a grand possession. Revelation 19 says, And the armies which are in heaven followed him upon white horses, clad in linen, fine and clean. That's a conquering army right there because we have a leader who just by the word of his mouth defeats the enemy. We're, you know, I never, and I'm honest about this, I never was privileged. I mean, I was draftable during Vietnam and I said, well, if they want me, they can call me otherwise. I'm just sort of going to stay here. And I never got called up. I never had the privilege of serving in our military. And I think it is a privilege. But I'm going to be in the army one of these days. I'm going to fly over the enemy. And I'm going to, what is that little children's song? March in the infantry and ride in the cavalry and shoot the artillery. And I won't have to shoot any artillery. The Lord's going to take care of that. It's going to be a glorious day. That's when God's kingdom comes to earth. It's what we're taught to pray for in the model prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we are taught to watch for it and we are taught to wait for it and we are taught to witness. Now wait doesn't mean sit down and do nothing. How many of you have ever been to a restaurant and had a waiter? Now you may have had a bad waiter and you thought he was sitting down and doing nothing. But wait means to serve. And so we're to serve and to wait and to witness and to live for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you know what it says? We get to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus. Not in arrogance. Revelation 20 verse 6, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. 
Jesus Christ sets up his millennial kingdom upon this earth, you and I'll have a position in it. What is it going to be? I don't know. Say, preacher, you don't know a lot, do you? I sure don't. But I tell you what, I know what God's word says and I believe what God's word says. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, We will judge the world and angels. Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Remember, they were taking each other to court there in the church at Corinth. Know ye not that we shall judge angels how much more things that pertain to this life? We ought to be able to make judgments in this life because one of these days we're going to judge angels I don't know exactly what all that is, but I know what the Bible says. And then there's the magnificence of his coming. Jesus will come in glory. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 10 says, He will come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired by all them that believe. I hope you admire Jesus right now. I hope you live a life that glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ right now. I believe in that day, Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 are going to be fulfilled when it says that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In that day, even those who have rejected him will be forced to admit Jesus Christ is Lord. There is a God in heaven. He did send his son to die on the cross that if a person by faith will receive him, turn to God in repentance, and by faith receive Jesus as Savior, they will be saved. Jesus is Lord. Revelation 4, verses 8 through 11 is a prayer, and look at this. And the four beasts that's in heaven had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders were pictured in those, by the way, fall down before him that sat on the throne, and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Why should I labor for rewards as a child of God? So one of these days when I'm standing before that throne, I can take that reward, that crown off my head. The Bible speaks of at least five crowns that we can receive. Take that crown off my head and cast it at the feet of Jesus in worship and honor of him. Chapter 5, verse 11. He's praised by all the earth. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts, and the elders, and the number of them, it was ten thousand times ten thousand, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is a lamb that was slain to receive power, and riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, heard I say, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. This whole earth is going to worship and glorify the Lord Jesus. Oh, there's going to be great glory. And there's going to be great holiness at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And folks, we get to be a part of it. That ought to thrill us. The effect of the second coming can be illustrated by the preacher who went out to the airport 
And he watched people come and go. And you know, as a plane would arrive or as one would take off, it brought great joy to some because somebody was coming home and they were receiving their loved one and, and they were filled with joy and it brought sorrow to others because they were seeing their loved ones depart. Maybe never to see them again. Well, this coming of Christ is going to be the same way. The same plane that brought joy brought sadness. The coming of Christ is going to bring joy to us. I hope it's going to bring joy to you. It's going to bring joy to us. It's going to be a wonderful time, a glorious time. Amen. But to those who do not know Jesus Christ as Savior, it'll be a time that brings God's wrath upon this earth. And that wrath comes upon those who do not, have not, will not believe the very simple truth in the beginning God. God always has been. God always will be. Moses asked the Lord, who shall I tell my Hebrew brothers has sent me? And you know what God said to tell them? Tell them I am sent you. The great I am. The God who was and is and is to come. The God who has a permanent, eternal present tense in our lives. Folks, that's who's coming back for us. And it ought to thrill us. It ought to excite us.